This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, a cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. Welcome to our podcast on the treatment of pulmonary hypertension, where vasodilative medicines don't work. So last time we had a great podcast on the, what is pulmonary hypertension, basically um, when, when the pressure is high in the arteries of the lung and uh, on the right side of the heart. Uh, we described five different groups of uh, patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension, and we're basically focusing on the group one or patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension, including some patients with connective tissue disease and mostly idiopathic type. We discussed the uh, presentation and, and the workup and, um, and how necessary it was to perform a right heart cardiac catheterization. And we mentioned also, uh, while in the cath lab, how we can establish whether the patient has a vasodilator response. Um, obviously understanding that's the minority of our patients. So what do we do in patients that do not respond to vasodilator therapy? This is what we are discussing today. But first, uh, Barry, if you could maybe uh, talk a little bit about what is our goal of therapy of, of medical treatment in these patients? Sure. Well, like in everything in medicine, when we set out on a course of treatment, it's good to have an idea of where we're headed, what our goals are, as you say. And there's different ways to look at that in treating type one pulmonary arterial hypertension. We have data that helps us to understand which guideposts or markers along the way seem to correlate in the longer term with better outcomes and better survival. So we really focus on those and, and they fall into two categories. They fall first into the clinical category and then second into hemodynamics. Um, on the clinical side, what we're looking for is an improvement in the patient's functional status. Last podcast, we spoke about uh, the WHO functional classification, which is very similar to the New York Heart Association functional classification that many people are used to. We like to see an improvement of at least one functional class, or depending on where you're starting, we'd like to get you to class one or two, if at all possible. We also look at a measurement called the six-minute walk test, and we follow those serially as we care for patients. And we'd like to see that get above a certain threshold that predicts a good outcome. So those are two clinical measures that we'll track over time and use to judge or get a sense of how our therapy is progressing. In parallel to that, from a hemodynamic perspective, we know this is a disease fundamentally of abnormal pulmonary vascular resistance. So we like to keep track of those hemodynamic markers that we know are involved with prognosis, such as right atrial pressure and cardiac output, both of which reflect the health or the well-being of the right ventricle. And ultimately, that's the organ that takes the hit in this disease. So we like to follow those perhaps a little less frequently than the clinical parameters, but still on a regular basis. So it looks like basically we want to improve quality of life as well as survival by um, improving or maybe 
decreasing the de deterioration or maybe improving the adaptation of the right ventricle to this disease where the pressures are very high in the lungs. That's good. Well, um, uh, Jason, maybe if you could tell us a little bit about the, uh, what are some of the general measures uh, that you implement in your treatment of patients with pulmonary hypertension? Um, so yeah, some general, some general treatment measures of pulmonary hypertension, what we call supportive therapy, um, is incredibly important. Um, there's kind of five major ones. One is um, oral anticoagulants. Um, so in certain cases in select patients, we will use blood thinners, <clears throat> whether that's warfarin or some of the um, direct acting oral anticoagulants like Pradaxa or Eliquis or Alto. So anticoagulation or systemic anticoagulation may be something uh, that your um, doctor recommends um, for your particular case. Second would be diuretics. So a lot of times um, when patients have um, right heart failure, they'll develop um, uh, volume overload or volume retention. This can be true with diuretics. There's a whole host of different diuretics that are used, but the idea is to get fluid off of the body um, to decompress or decongest um, the right side of the heart and uh, improve hemodynamics and actually improve symptoms as well. The third would be oxygen. There are some patients that have um, oxygen desaturation. So using supplemental oxygen in patients who have a correctable oxygen desaturation um, can be um, helpful, not only from a pulmonary hypertension standpoint, um, especially um, if you're in that who group three, you know, due to, due to hypoxia um, can actually help the pulmonary hypertension, but also symptoms as well. Um, fourth would be digoxin. So digoxin is an old cardiovascular medication um, and is used sometimes in patients with um, atrial tachyarrhythmias. So this is a medicine that can sometimes be used. In addition to that, there's kind of some um, evidence as well that it may help improve um, the right side of the heart um, contractile wise. So it is a um, considered kind of an inotrope, if you will, in a way, digoxin. Um, so there are some centers that use that as a um, oral medication to improve um, right ventricular function. And then lastly, the fifth supportive therapy that's used in some cases is iron substitution. So in patients with a documented um, iron deficiency, um, which can be easily detected with various labs and that sort of thing, um, iron supplementation either in the PO form or the IV form can be used um, in uh, patients with a uh, documented iron deficiency. So those are some of the supportive therapies in addition to some of the pulmonary hypertension specific therapy that can be used. Well, that's very helpful and particularly can apply to, um, you know, any physician following these patients. But obviously there are some advanced medicine that, that um, you know, most people are not very familiar with uh, that really we require advanced heart failure specialists and pulmonary arterial, uh, pulmonary hypertension specialists uh, that know these medications best and, and can prescribe and give access to the patient. Uh, and Barry, if you could maybe describe for us, you know, these four main uh, groups of um, medication, how do they work? Um, what are they? And how do we, um, how do we apply them to uh, patient care? Who, who, for example, is a candidate for IV uh, medication versus oral medication and so forth? Nice little small topic there, Elaine. Thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you said, there there are four major categories of therapies other than the calcium channel blockers. And, and Jason spoke eloquently about the calcium channel blockers in our last podcast for that small subset of patients 
who are brisk vasoresponders on initial testing. But beyond that, we look to four categories, and, and I'll give them in no particular order, although probably it's the order that they're commonly used. And the first are the uh, PDE5 inhibitors, what are called phosphodiesterase inhibitors. Uh, PDE5 inhibitors are medicines that are very familiar to the public because they are the same medicines that are used for the treatment of erectile dysfunction and have had major ad campaigns going on for the last several years for that usage. So it's always a bit of a surprise to our patients, particularly the women, when we tell them we're going to prescribe them what essentially is Viagra. Um, we use them as the generic drugs now, sildenafil and tadalafil. Um, those are medications that are pretty easily obtained. They've become relatively cost efficient uh, as they've become generic. Um, and are medicines that work by inhibiting this phosphodiesterase 5 um, and in doing so allow you to retain your own nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is a theme we come back to again and again in pulmonary hypertension. Um, nitric oxide is a very powerful vasodilator of the lungs, drops the pressure, and in pulmonary hypertension patients, it tends to be low. So by blocking phosphodiesterase, we help you keep on your own nitric oxide longer than you might otherwise. So that's one category. The second category are called endothelin receptor antagonists. Endothelin, again, is a chemical that's present in our bodies. In this case, it's a powerful vasoconstrictor. So we don't want it to work. So we block its receptor. That's very similar to the way we treat body high blood pressure with things like angiotensin receptor blockers. It's the same idea, but the endothelin receptor antagonists are less common drugs and really don't have much other use than pulmonary hypertension. We have uh, three of those. We have bosentin, mazetitin, um, and ambrosentin that we use. Uh, those medicines are somewhat restricted in their access and they remain right now name brand drugs, so a, a bit on the expensive side. We then move into a category of prostacycline and prostacycline-like drugs. Uh, these are actually the oldest category of drugs that we've had for pulmonary hypertension other than the supportive therapies Jason mentioned and calcium blockers. Uh, prostacycline therapy goes back to the first study of epiprostanol. Uh, many years ago now in the New England Journal, which was the first medication to make a substantial difference in survival in very sick patients with pulmonary hypertension and was unfortunately only available as a continuous infusion intravenous drug had to be administered at home through a specialized IV pump, had to be administered on ice. The patients had to learn to mix their own drug. It was a very complicated therapy. Um, and although very effective, had lots of issues with complications and side effects. As we've moved forward in time, we've developed other strategies with those medications. We've developed different versions of the prostacycline drugs. We now have a prostacycline analog that's available orally called Arenatram, which is Triprostanil is the generic name. Uh, that's an oral version 
of an IV drug that we know is remodulin, and those are available. And then more recently, we have uh, an IP receptor agonist drug, Selexapeg, which is a drug that we now use that's not technically a prostacycline, but works through that same prostacycline mechanism. Um, these are very powerful drugs, very effective, however, also complex drugs. They carry a high burden of side effects, um, and managing these drugs is complex. It takes uh, some, some experience and some skill, and they too are somewhat restricted in their availability. And finally, there's a fourth category of drug called the soluble guanylate cyclase agonists or stimulators. Um, this one drug in that category is called Riosaguat or Adempus. Um, it's a drug that, again, somewhat parallels the PD-5 inhibitors in that the long and short of it is it's trying to increase your own endogenous nitric oxide. So that's the menu, if you will, of medications that we have to choose from when we're looking at a patient with pulmonary hypertension who either is not a brisk vasoresponder or has been on calcium channel blockers and has started to fail that therapy. So uh, maybe, Jason, you could help us also de define how we, uh, in the patients that are mildly symptomatic, maybe uh, uh, WHO class one, <clears throat> what do you do for these patients? Do you just watch them when you start them on, you know, PO medication, um, patients that have more advanced symptoms, WHO class two or three gets short of breath on minimal exertion um, versus the patient that is a class four or short of breath at rest now. How do you approach these patients, these different patient categories? Yes, that's a great question. Um, you know, for a lot of things in medicine, <clears throat> including cardiology, um, you know, symptom burden um, is always a, um, a big buzzword for us. You know, so if a patient is symptomatic um, for any number of reasons, whether it's valve disease or heart disease or pulmonary hypertension, um, we kind of um, put up our antenna and realize that there's, you know, um, work that needs to be done to get patients feeling better. We strive um, in the heart failure world as well as the pulmonary hypertension world to get patients to a very satisfactory um, functional class or in the heart failure world, it's called a New York Heart Class Association um, functional class. And then in the pulmonary hypertension world, it's called the WHO class. Um, so in the pulmonary hypertension world, you know, we strive to get patients to a functional class of one, if not two, um, so that patients are resuming normal activities um, as if they didn't have pulmonary hypertension. This can be measured in lots of different ways, like Barry was talking about, whether it's a six-minute walk or a cardiopulmonary exercise test or um, even a um, right heart catheterization, always striving, um, using these techniques, using this prognostic information to get patients to what we call low risk. So generally speaking, it's easy to group patients into three risk categories, um, um, and by risk, we mean, um, uh, estimated one year mortality. So a low risk person would be an estimated, um, one year mortality, less than 5% intermediate risk would be five to 10 and then high risk would be greater than 10. So we have learned in the pulmonary retention world over the last several years that striving to get patients to a low risk status, meaning a less than 5% chance of mortality in a year is really what we aim to do. So we would like to see, you know, those prognostic markers all low risk all the way down. And if they're not, then that means that there's more work for us to do. Um, 
So usually uh, uh, sequentially adding on therapy is very suggested. You know, the PD-5 inhibitors are kind of the first line treatment for a lot of, uh, for a lot of patients. And then moving on to the ERA or the um, endothelin receptor antagonist, um, um, optimizing that, titrating that. And if patients are still symptomatic or still not low risk, then going on to the prostanoid class of medicines, whether that's oral or IV or sub-Q or inhaled, all the different flavors that we have for that class of uh, medications. Um, um, what you usually start with um, can also be very center dependent. We can get into that um, a little bit later in this podcast about some of the clinical trials and data. Um, but generally speaking, you know, starting medicines and, and adding medicines in order to achieve a low risk status is really what um, pulmonary hypertension is all about. So it's, it appears that the, um, the patients that are you know, short of breath at rest, the, the uh, class four uh, New York or, and WHO class, uh, you would be pretty aggressive with them and, and start um, very likely with IV medication, wouldn't you? Yes, that's correct. So generally speaking, the, the sicker the patient, the more aggressive you have to be. Um, so in these very sick patients that are, you know, who class four um, or advanced class three, you're going to be looking at IV or sub-Q, some sort of parenteral, um, so non-oral formulation of, um, of a prostanoid, um, and then very quickly layering on your PD-5 um, and the ERA on top of that. So these patients, if tolerated, um, and because they're so sick, you usually are in the hospital. You know, these medicines are started with a, an urgency and up titrated, um, you know, quickly under the guidance, under the close guidance in an ICU, um, sometimes with a monitoring catheter called a Swan-Gans catheter, which is like a Reihard cath, but is continuously providing you information in order to get these patients on therapy um, to improve their hemodynamics quickly. So yes, the the degree of sickness of a patient, so to speak, um, does dictate the cadence um, as well as the selection of medications. Um, and uh, so all that is obviously very individualized to the patient um, and uh, um, can be uh, something that requires a kind of patient-physician discussion um, and uh, very individualized um, management situation. So Barry, it looks like in, in these patients that are very sick, the sickest, um, it looks like the, the trend is really to start these medication on, on combination therapy right from the start. Isn't that uh, what's happening now? Yeah, and, and honestly, Elaine, even in the milder, the patients who are class two, we have uh, now a couple of trials, probably the most significant trial that's altered practice, I think, in a meaningful way is a trial called Ambition. Um, Ambition was a direct comparison between the use of a PDE5 inhibitor, Tadalafil, an ERA, Ambrosentin, uh, together or each separately with placebo uh, in patients with at least moderate symptoms, but not, not necessarily these very sick patients that Jason was talking about who, who merit intravenous therapy initially. Um, and the results were, were very positive that combination therapy offered significant benefits over either one alone. Uh, so I think that's become, I would say, probably standard of practice in ambulatory outpatients with pulmonary hypertension to fairly quickly, if not simultaneously, move to at least two drug therapy uh, early on in their course. Along those lines, uh, Jason, do you want to tell us a little bit about the Triton clinical trial that was just released at the European Congress of Cardiology? Yes, so as Barry suggested, the ambition trial 
um, which was 2015, you know, was a landmark trial showing that combination therapy. So not using just one medicine, but two medicines up front, two of the classes was beneficial in patients. So then of course the logical question would be, well, what about doing three medicines, all three medicines up front? So that was um, the Triton trial was looking at all three classes um, up front um, for newly diagnosed pulmonary hypertension patients. So the treatment arm was using a medicine called Selexapag or Aptravi, um, in addition to um, Massey-Tintan and the Tadalafil, um, where the control arm was looking at just Massey-Tintan and um, Tadalafil. So the main difference between the two treatment groups was adding Selexapag, um, which is a um, prostacyclone uh, receptor agonist. It's an oral formulation, so it's a little bit easier to take and use without having to deal with IVs or, or subcutaneous pumps. So this medication uh, or this trial, unfortunately, the primary endpoint was not met. Um, the primary endpoint was a um, combination of endpoints looking at pulmonary vascular resistance, which is a hemodynamic marker um, that we use on right heart caths. Um, um, also looking at six-minute walk test and then the N-terminal pro-BNP, which is a kind of a prognostic marker that we use um, for pulmonary hypertension patients, also kind of a loose measure of fluid status in someone's body. So that combined endpoint, um, there was no difference between the double oral combination versus the initial triple oral combination. Um, so uh, uh, a little bit disappointing. Um, you know, we would have expected potentially that these um, results would have been positive. However, you know, there was um, a sign of um, reduced risk of disease progression on the initial triple oral therapy. So some of the secondary endpoints were positive. Um, and showing the reduction of uh, risk progression is an important you know, outcome, although it wasn't the primary outcome. So I think that there's going to be probably further studies, further trials, looking um, um, at these, you know, at upfront triple therapy. Of course, this was just using one prostanoid. We have a whole family of different ones. So maybe a different, you know, more potent prostanoid up front might be helpful. Um, so again, technically a negative trial, still had some interesting results. Um, and I think that the, um, um, the idea of upfront triple therapy um, is still a good idea um, and it probably still requires more and will have more further investigations in the future. I think Triton, you know, I'd be interested in Jason's take on this. I think Triton was an ambitious trial in its design. And I think one of the places it might've been a bit overambitious was the speed with which they expected. It was a fairly short trial to achieve uh, a combination endpoint um, that they had, that they had structured. And, and certainly if positive would have been a home run, but uh, I think it was a difficult, they set themselves a very difficult hurdle. So their objective was 30 months, wasn't it? They, they looked at the data after two and a half years? Yeah, it was years. about 80, 80 weeks, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I think it's pretty encouraging to see that, you know, they still had some, you know, reduction in, in hospitalization for deterioration of uh, pulmonary hypertension, as well as, uh, you know, um, improvement, you know, in the time to all-cause death. Um, you know, there was some very, some, some very um, positive, you know, um, results, but uh, I mean, overall, it did not achieve its um, its goal, but there were some very interesting findings, I think, in that, in that trial. I agree. And then, of course, we always, you know, uh, tolerability and safety. So both of those um, checked out okay. There weren't any 
um, increased side effects um, or adverse effects with the upfront triple therapy. Um, so, I mean, I think, uh, um, you know, it, it's always hard in the pH world because these numbers are small. There is not a whole lot of randomized controlled trials. Um, a lot of times, at least in my opinion, I don't know what Barry thinks, especially coming from the heart failure world where in heart failure, we have very hard outpoints, very hard outcomes. We're talking about, you know, mortality, hospitalizations, these sorts of things. In the pH world, you have kind of some loose outcomes, you know, like six minute walk test and usually some biomarkers, that sort of thing. So it's, you know, quite not as hard endpoints as, um, you know, other areas of uh, medicine. So having a short trial with kind of, you know, the soft but accepted um, outcomes or, or endpoints um, may have contributed to, you know, maybe it not being as um, strong or positive as a trial as it could have been. Yeah, I, I agree with Jason. The, uh, you know, we, uh, as people, both Jason and I work in the world of heart failure and the world of pulmonary hypertension, and you have to um, lane shift a little bit from trials with thousands, if not 10,000 participants with very easy to measure hard endpoints, as Jason said, to a trial like Triton, which we consider honestly a monumentally important trial in its conduct, and it enrolled, I think, 247 patients um, over a fairly long period of time to get that number. So it really is a, a, a real difference just because of the rareness of this disease um, to gather useful information in a meaningful way. Barry, let's let's talk about the cost a little bit of these medication. You know, in in the heart failure world, um, you know, it's already a difficult um, subject, particularly you know treating a patient with medication like SGLT two inhibitors that cost you know five hundred dollars a month. Uh, you have the Entresto, which is over that even per month. It's not difficult. It's pretty difficult to um, implement best therapies, you know, for our patient. In the pulmonary hypertension world, I mean, it's uh, obviously even more of a problem. Um, what are the costs and, and how do you do that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's always been a difficult situation. I, I will say it's gotten progressively better. We now have the PDE5 inhibitors are generic. We have some of the endothelin receptor antagonists generic. That's not to say that they're inexpensive. Um, but they have started to move more in that direction. Prostacyclines and some of the ERAs um, and the soluble guanolate cyclase inhibitors are still very expensive drugs. I will say that our industry partners, as well as some other organizations that are out there, have been very, very good at stepping up for our patients. And I have to say it's fairly rare that I cannot get coverage for a patient for therapy that they need. Um, it may take some shenanigans. It may take some work. Uh, I am blessed with, uh, you know, Anna is my nurse coordinator. Uh, Anna is literally a master of the game. Um, and sort of, I give the order to Anna, then a miracle occurs and out the other side comes a patient successfully treated and somehow at an acceptable price. So she has really mastered this. And largely that is due to the, I think, generosity of the corporate partners and, and other charities that are available to help our patients. So we can usually get it covered. Jason, uh, do you have also a miracle worker? Yes, we all have our own miracle workers. The only real 
way to have a pulmonary hypertension program work is to have a pulmonary hypertension coordinator. Um, and uh, even though this is a rare disease and a lot of times you don't have a lot of patients, this is still a full-time job. Um, you know, these patients um, are very complicated. Um, they have lots of questions. Um, I don't want to use the term needy in a negative way, but, you know, they just have a, a lot of things that they need. Um, in addition to that, the uh, medication authorizations, working with the companies, working with any sort of patient assistance, um, um, and of course, the insurance companies um, requires a lot of work, a lot of faxing. Yes, we still fax. You know, this is 2020 and the, the fax is still alive and well in the in pulmonary hypertension world, which is shocking to me. Um, and, uh, and then all the things that go along with that lost paperwork, lost faxes. We didn't get this. We didn't get that. The patient didn't sign it on this day. I mean, it, it really is a, um, a multitude of hurdles to get patients, um, you know, treated and on these medicines. And then, uh, and then it all repeats again at the beginning of the year when they get new insurance or everything cycles all over again. So it's a, a never ending battle. Just when you get them accepted and on medicines, then, you know, in just a few short months, you're gonna have to do it all over again. Um, so yes, we all have a special person um, that is kind of the point person for this, and uh, they definitely um, are incredibly important and worth their weight in gold. Important to have this, um, you know, the the heart team approach, you know, with the uh, coordinating centers uh, and um, trying to uh, get all the resources together for these patients. I mean, an incredible contribution to uh, the treatment of this very difficult disease. Uh, where do we go from here? You know, what kind of um, research um, is being pursued, uh, for example, at your center, um, Jason? Yeah, there's a, a lot of exciting things going on in pulmonary hypertension. Um, you have uh, on the device side, um, you know, fully implantable pumps, um, which are now on the horizon, um, currently being used in select centers, um, but should be um, available nationwide, you know, hopefully first quarter of next year. So patients who were on, you know, sub-Q, um, which requires an external pump, or IV, um, which requires obviously an external pump, can now be housed internally. Um, so it's like a pacemaker. Everyone kind of knows what a pacemaker is, and that pacemaker pocket um, has a, um, um, a refillable uh, bladder um, that then pumps the medication. Um, so everything is internal. So being able to shower um, or... Um, take a bath or, you know, go to the beach or be um, fully submerged um, will now be an option for some of these patients where it wasn't before. Um, so uh, um, that's obviously a, a huge advancement. Um, there's also improvements on the inhaled form of um, some of these medicines. Um, the current inhaled form is a medicine called Tyvesa, which is pureprostinil. It's done four times a day, um, trying to um, make that, and it's a huge kind of unit that patients have to use trying to make that smaller with a dry powder um, um, to make it a little bit easier um, for patients to take is another kind of advancement um, in that world. Um, there's also new medications and new technologies as well. So one of the kind of newer medications that's being tested is med medicine called um, um, Aplin antagonist, um, which is kind of a new kind of breakthrough medicine that's uh, recently trialed in kind of a small trial that showed uh, kind of beneficial hemodynamic effects um, so maybe a new IV medicine sometime in the future. And of course, probably the biggest one um, that's had a big splash is pulmonary artery denervation. So actually going in and extinguishing some of the nerves that um, inter that um, innervate the uh, pulmonic or pulmonary artery system 
to actually relax these vessels to kind of counteract some of the um, um, hormones and um, signaling molecules that actually constrict the, constrict the pulmonary arteries. So this will be in addition to medications. Um, in the initial um, investigations have been very positive. So patients that have been either resistant to medicines or have failed medicines, and even met people that have been on medicines, there's an incremental benefit potentially with um, pulmonary artery denervation. So lots of exciting things um, in the field of pulmonary hypertension, like a lot of fields ever advancing and um, hopefully going to be better for our patients, uh, you know, even better for our patients in the near future. Is this the same type of um, denervation that we've seen for the treatment of hypertension with the renal uh, artery denervation, this catheter technique and that's correct. Cord. Yeah. Yeah. Using ultrasound. Yeah. Using ultrasound to denervate um, the pulmonary arteries. Yep. Barry. Yeah, I think that's right. I think Jason's right. We, uh, it, it's an exciting field because it's an, uh, a field of ongoing evolution. I'm, uh, I'm old enough to uh, date back to the original epiprostanol trial uh, when we emerged from the area era of literally having nothing other than calcium channel blockers for those select few uh, and have seen all of these therapies evolve uh, in the course of my career. And, and it's fun to see it continue to evolve, to, to be able to provide our patients with other things. Just to add to the things that Jason mentioned, um, I just saw an interesting abstract about right atrial pacing, uh, improving hemodynamics of the right ventricle in patients with pulmonary hypertension type one. So um, there are a lot of ideas, a lot of strategies out there that uh, I think are intriguing. Um, there are a couple of other therapies we haven't touched on um, that are of limited utility because of the complexity, uh, things such as atrial septostomy uh, and ultimately lung transplantation, which certainly serves a role for a small number of our patients, but for those few, maybe a, a life-saving and very important therapy as well. Well, it seems like the future is getting brighter for these uh, patients with a very difficult disease, uh, pulmonary hypertension. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the, uh, we're going to see uh, further development of these treatment within the next few years, uh, something to hope for uh, if you're a patient with pulmonary arterial hypertension. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you very much. Um, this is a great information about the treatment of these patients with pulmonary hypertension when vasodilator medicine don't work. Barry, thank you very much. And Jason, uh, we'll talk to you next time. Appreciate your help. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.